Welcome to conference coverage presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day. Featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the American College of Gastroenterology's 75th Annual Scientific Meeting, which took place October 15th through the 20th in San Antonio, Texas. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host. And I'm Sue Berg. The American College of Gastroenterology's 75th Annual Scientific Meeting attracted approximately 4,000 participants from around the world and highlighted on advances in the management of patients with gastrointestinal disorders, focusing on cancer, esophageal and bowel disorders, liver disease, and pancreatic and biliary conditions. In a prospective study conducted at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Researchers found that inflammatory bowel disease and vitamin D deficiency were associated with abnormal bone density. 161 patients with IBD were evaluated. These patients were between 10 and 70 years old and had been diagnosed with IBD based on clinical, radiologic, endoscopic, and histological data. A reduction in bone density with the diagnosis of either osteopenia or osteoporosis was seen in 22% of patients. 50% of these patients were under age 40. Vitamin D deficiency was found in 40% of patients with abnormal bone density, while only 1% of patients with normal bone density were vitamin D deficient. This association persisted after adjusting for corticosteroid intake and age, and it was consistent among males and females independently. Overall, IBD patients with vitamin D deficiency were nine times more likely to have abnormal bone density scans than those with normal vitamin D levels. Investigators concluded that practicing physicians should check vitamin D levels in IBD patients, since patients with vitamin D deficiency are more likely to have osteoporosis or osteopenia on bone density scan. The American College of Gastroenterology held a press briefing highlighting a series of studies focused on prevention and management of increasing rates of Clostridium difficile infection. During the press briefing, Dr. Mark Mello of the Integris Digestive Health Center in Oklahoma City discussed the effectiveness of a new approach for the treatment of patients with recurrent or refractory C. diff infection, colonoscopic fecal bacteriotherapy or fecal transplantation. The approach involves removing fecal matter from a healthy individual, liquefying it, and infusing it into the colon of an individual with recurrent or refractory C. diff infection during colonoscopy. Investigator Dr. Mello reported on the outcomes of the first 13 patients treated with fecal transplantation at the Integris Digestive Health Center. The patient group consisted of six females and seven males between the ages of 32 and 87 years old. They were treated between July 2009 and April 2010. During a five-month follow-up, the investigators found that nearly all patients experienced resolution of diarrhea, with a success rate of 92%. Most of the patients who received fecal transplantation had previously experienced at least four episodes of C. diff infection that lasted an average of 11 and a half months and had continuously relapsed. At the meeting, Dr. Mello said investigators were impressed by the fact that these patients improved so well with the fecal transplantation approach. Dr. Douglas Strassman of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill provided an overview of the role of abuse history in gastrointestinal disorders and symptom exacerbation and he discussed the underlying mechanisms for this association. It's been reported that, overall, abuse history appears to be highly prevalent in patients with gastrointestinal symptoms, especially those with functional GI diagnoses and severe symptoms. According to Dr. Drossman, there may be a functional abnormality in areas of the brain that modulate pain and emotion in these patients, leading to more severe pain symptoms. 
He said there is growing evidence that centrally targeted interventions, including antidepressants and behavioral treatments, may have palliative effects on reducing symptoms, as well as altering brain-gut dysregulation and improving the clinical outcome among patients with GI disorders. He concluded, practicing clinicians need to understand the association between brain and gut and how to inquire about abuse history so as to provide directed care, in particular for patients with more severe GI symptoms. A diet low in fructose consumption may improve symptoms of recurrent or functional abdominal pain among children and adolescents. These children appear to frequently have fructose intolerance or malabsorption. In a study at Mary Bridge Children's Hospital and Health Center in Tacoma, Washington, researchers used a breath hydrogen test in order to ascertain if pediatric patients with chronic abdominal pain had concurrent fructose intolerance and whether symptoms would improve with low-fructose diets. A total of 245 patients took part in the study. Over 62% were female. Ages ranged from 2 to 18 years, with an average age of 11. Breath hydrogen tests were positive for fructose intolerance in nearly 54% of patients. All patients who tested positive for fructose intolerance received nutrition consults with a registered dietitian and were placed on a low-fructose diet. Using a standard pain scale for evaluation, 68% of children reported resolution of symptoms on a low-fructose diet. Furthermore, 48% of patients who tested negative for fructose intolerance reported resolution of symptoms without a low-fructose diet. Increased colorectal cancer screening programs targeting the pre-Medicare population appear to reduce costs associated with colorectal cancer treatment later in life. Researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital sought to quantify the impact of different screening programs for the pre-Medicare population, ages 50 to 64 years old, on costs in the Medicare population. Investigators estimated screening and treatment costs of three programs. One, fecal occult blood test. Two, colonoscopy and fecal occult blood test. And three, colonoscopy alone. These three screening programs were compared to current screening, The programs were assumed to increase screening between 2010 and 2025, beyond the level predicted by current trends. For each program, lifetime costs were tallied for individuals who were age 50 or older in 2010, as well as for those turning 50 between the years 2011 to 2024. Due to increased screening, total costs in the pre-Medicare population increased for all three programs, but total costs in the Medicare population averaged 4% lower compared to a situation without screening programs, mainly due to savings in treatment costs. Investigators found that treatment savings in the older age group fully offset the increased costs in the younger age group, making all screening programs cost-saving in the long term. They also concluded that the upfront investment in screening individuals ages 50 to 64 would be recouped only after they transition to Medicare at age 65. The authors of the study write, It is therefore important to invest in screening programs targeting the pre-Medicare population. Researchers reported that obesity and insulin resistance appear to be associated with an increased risk of non-serotic hepatocellular carcinoma. And obesity appears to also be tied to an elevated risk of colorectal adenoma recurrence. Hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, is a relatively rare occurrence in the absence of advanced fibrosis, cirrhosis, or hepatitis B. However, it's been estimated that up to 10% of HCC occurs in non-serotic livers, and it's been suggested that obesity and insulin resistance may be risk factors for non-serotic HCC. 
Investigators on this study reviewed the clinical and histological features of patients with non-serotic HCC in order to determine if there was an association between liver cancer, body mass index, and diabetes. Data was analyzed from a cohort of 12 patients with non-serotic liver cancer who underwent partial hepatectomy between January 2008 and September 2009 at a single center. Preoperative data was evaluated, including age, gender, BMI, lesion size, number of lesions, prior therapy, and other comorbidities. Data related to the resection was also reviewed, including background histology, tumor size, differentiation, and vascular invasion. Postoperative complications and mortality were also followed. Average age was 60 years old, with an equal number of males and females in the study. Of the 12 patients, two were morbidly obese, one was obese, five were overweight, and four were normal weight. Four out of 12 patients had diabetes. All patients had a single hepatocellular carcinoma. Preoperative testing and histology for underlying liver disease was negative in all but two patients, both with hemochromatosis. Two patients had myosteatosis. Vascular invasion was present in five out of 12 lesions, with six well-differentiated with six well-differentiated and six moderately differentiated tumors. At the time of the review, there were no known recurrences during average follow-up of 17 and a half months. Investigators concluded that these patients with non-serotic liver cancer had a high prevalence of diabetes and elevated BMIs despite a lack of steatosis, and that this finding supports previous data on the possible association of non-serotic liver cancer with elevated BMI as well as diabetes mellitus independent of steatosis. Patients were also noted to have advanced tumors that were large in size with vascular invasion. Despite advanced disease, patients tolerated resection very well with minimal complications, no operative mortality, and an average tumor-free follow-up of 17 and a half months. In three separate studies, diagnostic approaches to inflammatory bowel disease, including capsule endoscopy and magnetic resonance enteroscopy, were found to be effective in managing patients potentially evading use of ionizing radiation. In one retrospective study, investigators quantified and compared the effects of age, gender, and ethnicity on ionizing radiation exposure from diagnostic radiographic imaging in IBD patients of low socioeconomic status. Data was collected on demographics, disease characteristics, and radiographic imaging, and patients' radiation exposure was calculated by total number of imaging studies performed during the review as well as the reference estimates of radiation dose per study. Over half of the 278 patients in the study were female, 30% were Caucasian, 44% were African American, and 26% were Hispanic. Investigators found that these IBD patients were exposed to significant amounts of ionizing radiation, with average total exposure per patient 35.7 millisieverts. A trend was observed toward more radiation exposure in male patients under the age of 35 compared to females of similar age. Investigators concluded that these results are clinically relevant in the context of established gender trends for cancer risk in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, and their association with low socioeconomic status bears further study. A second study evaluated the clinical utility of MR enterography, or MRE, in patients with known or suspected Crohn's disease. Fifty MREs performed for known or suspected Crohn's disease over a 10-month period were reviewed. Investigators found most patients with clinically mild to moderate disease activity did not have active disease by MRE. In these patients, MRE prevented escalation of therapy and led to the workup of alternate diagnoses. Overall, MRE appeared to be a useful tool, leading to management change in 66% of cases without use of ionizing radiation.
In a third study, investigators examined the efficacy of MR enterography for evaluating Crohn's disease by obtaining endoscopic or histologic evidence within 90 days of the MRE. 850 patients with known or suspected Crohn's disease underwent routine MRE without pharmacologic bowel paralysis. Of these, 310 also underwent endoscopy with biopsy within 90 days. The sensitivity and specificity of the MRE compared to endoscopy and pathology were evaluated retrospectively. In patients who underwent MRE followed by endoscopy with biopsy, the overall sensitivity of MRE was 84% and specificity 76%. The results improved as the time period decreased between the MRE and endoscopy. In 162 patients who underwent endoscopy within 30 days, sensitivity remained 84%, but specificity increased from 76 to 82%. Specificity improved further if the MRE was compared to a positive result in either the endoscopy or pathology. The investigators concluded that MRE is highly correlated with endoscopic and histologic assessment for non-invasive evaluation of known or suspected Crohn's disease, without, they noted, the exposure to ionizing radiation of CT enterography. A study of 93 patients found that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease appears to be associated with a high prevalence of coronary artery disease. Patients underwent a full coronary angiogram to determine presence of CAD, and radiologic images were assessed for the presence of fatty liver. Patients with non-fatty liver disease tended to be older and weighed more. They were also more commonly diabetic, hypertensive, and had hyperlipidemia. Prevalence of angiographically proved coronary artery disease in this cohort was 61%, compared to 26% in controls. This led investigators to conclude non-alcoholic fatty liver disease may be strongly associated with angiographically proven CAD. And another study looked at inflammatory bowel disease as a risk factor for coronary artery disease. To evaluate the presence of traditional atherosclerotic risk factors in patients with inflammatory bowel disease and coronary artery disease, investigators conducted a cross-sectional single-center review of Framingham risk factors in the medical records of 112 patients with either IBD or CAD. Framingham risk scores for patients with both IBD and CAD were compared with 100 patients who had CAD alone. The adjusted total Framingham score was significantly lower in patients with IBD and CAD as compared to those with CAD alone, implying that inflammatory bowel disease is an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. The study authors noted that the results agree with those of smaller studies, and further prospective cohort studies are needed. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the American College of Gastroenterology's 75th Annual Scientific Meeting, which took place October 15th through the 20th in San Antonio, Texas. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD, and powered by Health Day.